You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 85. On this show, Prevention That Empowers, a biblical best practice model. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and as always, make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, one of the things that we have done as a center, the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University, is very consistently over the years hosts the Ensure Justice Conference. And uh, we should say something about that because our topic today actually relates to that theme Mm, directly. That's right. That's right. You know, the Ensure Justice Conference, we chose that name because of a scripture in Proverbs, Proverbs 31, verse 8, that says, Be a voice for those who have no voice. Ensure justice for those being crushed. And when you think about that phrase, ensure justice for those being crushed, there's a sense of urgency to make things right, equalize, stabilize, catch someone before they're, they're, they fall and, and break both legs or before the big bulldozer rolls over them and crushes them. And so this idea of of somehow preventing tragedy, intervening in the face of disaster. That's what the Insured Justice Conference is about. We want to equip people to be able to identify and intervene and truly help those who are the most marginalized avoid becoming victims. You know, Sandy, uh, it's going to be no surprise to anyone who's listened to this show for any length of time, that we are big believers in prevention and looking at things over the long term in order for us to create change and influence that's sustainable. And I know that's a big Mm -hmm. part of the work you do and a part of the center's mission and very much a part of my own personal mission and philosophy as well. And so the, 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 the conference and our story today, I, I think will really capture that. Well, and I want to go back to the earliest recorded um, story of possible human trafficking and a successful prevention strategy that I've ever read. And it's actually in the Old Testament. And Dave, it's only seven verses. Why don't you read that story to us? And then I'm going to kind of take it apart for you. I would be happy to. And this is from the Second Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 in the New Living Translation. One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you? Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into the house with your sons and shut the door behind you. 
pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. Powerful story there. So let's look at it at the very beginning. At the very beginning, you have um, some markers of risk and vulnerability that we already know about in human trafficking. We know that widows and orphans are at higher risk. So in this particular culture, because she was a widow, she didn't have um, the land, she didn't have the resources that she had before, but she still had the care of two little boys. And so the creditors would come and asked the for the boys to pay for the debts. This is a common thread in human trafficking around the world. You owe a debt, so you have to work for me. We see that in brick kilns in Southeast Asia. We see it in um, scams where presumably a smuggler brings someone from Latin America into the U.S., and now they owe them a debt. We've seen it with girls rescued here in Orange County who owed a debt for a family member in in Singapore. How does that happen? So it's not something new. This is as old as literally the Bible. And here's two little boys that were at risk because their mother is a widow. And if we look at that and we try and consider that in the context of our modern society, I would extend that to include any mom trying to raise her kids alone. If she's a single mom, she doesn't have the same resources and her challenges um, increase her vulnerability, but especially the vulnerability of of her children. So then let's look at what does Elisha do? Um, I'm, I'm from California and I been to lots of great churches. And I know that sometimes we have the sense that the church should respond to this. And so when I come in and talk to you about it, um, some some of the kids from the, the graphics department say, oh, well, we'll make a video and play music and bring boys in. We'll take their pictures and we'll do a little video and then we'll take an offering on Sunday and we'll be able to pay the debt. Um, but that's not what Elisha did. And one of the other things that we often do is we've got kind of a benevolence fund. And so Elisha probably could have easily said, well, how much is that? Mm. Let me write a check. But he didn't do that either because this mom was going to need to keep raising those boys and paying the debt now. Um, what about next year? And what about the year after that? So instead, he asked her, what do you have? He didn't tell her what he has or what this organization down the street has. He told her what, he asked her, what do you have? And what did she answer? The olive oil. Yep. 
and it was just a little flask. Now, Dave, you know I lived in Greece, so I'm going to tell you about that flask. That flask was just enough olive oil to put in her lamp if she was out after dark and ran out of oil to get home safely. Mm-hmm. It would be equivalent to you or I carrying a double A battery for our little flashlight. So it wasn't even enough to cook. And you know, I wrote a Greek cookbook and I can you tell did. you, you, you cannot cook a Greek meal with a flask of olive oil. You need a jar of olive oil. I was thought, I thought you were going to say you cannot cook a Greek meal without my cookbook. And oh. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. Actually, oh, well. It's a fabulous book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, so a flask of olive oil, because you know, when he first asked her, tell me what you have in the house, what does she say? Nothing except a flask of olive oil. So for her, it, it was like, that's not, that shouldn't even count. So it really demonstrates to the listener to this story back in those times, how destitute she really was. And yet, Elisha keyed in on what she actually had. How small it was did not matter. She had one resource. And that's, that's kind of a, um, an indication of the kind of, of strategies of assessment. We need to find out, is she, does she have a license to do hair? Has she been to nursing school? Um, does she live in, a, in an area where she can go to a community college and get some skills? What are the resources that are available to her? So then he makes a really strange um, uh, request of her. He tells her to go out and borrow jars from the community. And this is my second big point for um, a response to ensuring justice for these little boys who are on a track that is not of their own doing. They had nothing to do with their father's death, and yet they're about to be sold as slaves. The community needs to be involved. And the way I usually think about the community being involved is I go out and ask people to make donations and ask them to give up their substance to these kids. That's not what Elisha did. He just said, go borrow their empty jars. So he got the entire community engaged because they went out and borrowed jars from everybody in the neighborhood, family, friends, everyone. And I don't know about you, but if somebody comes and asks me for money, I may not even unlock the screen door. But if they, they're just collecting some empty bottles, then, oh, yeah, sure, you can mm-hmm. have that. Yeah. It doesn't actually cost me anything. But now I am interested in what they're going to do. And then this is the part that really um, just always makes me wonder And I use the term wonder in the sense of awe because she's been obedient. She's collected the jars. And now Elisha tells her, shut the door and start pouring. Well, from a little flask, it's it's the faith to follow through and do with the very small piece of whatever resource you have. And then God shows up. And in the story, you begin to see that every single jar is filled. Every single jar is filled. And to the point that there's not an empty, it's clear in the story, there's not one overlooked jar in the house. And the only thing we've learned about the boys so far is they're big enough to bring her a jar. That's about it. We don't even know their names. 
And sometimes we focus so much on the faces and and the names and the stories of the children when the real the real story here is about their mother. Mm. So the community's engaged, and now all the jars are full, and Elisha says um, to take the olive oil and go and sell the olive oil and pay all of her debts. So she takes the jars out, and here's a great thing. She is selling something that everybody in that part of the world uses. Remember, you can't cook Greek. Well, you can't cook Mediterranean. You can't cook in that part of the world without olive oil. And I actually probably believe you can't cook here without olive oil either, but that's my own preference. So she is not selling something that is a luxury She's not selling something that some people might like to have if they have enough money. She's selling something everybody needs to have. This is a part of her community. It fits their culture. And she's now an olive oil entrepreneur. And in that role, then she's able to provide for her sons. She has dignity in she's not selling something that's really just a glorified donor gift. She's selling something people need. And, you know, she came to my door and asked to borrow a jar. I'm pretty likely to buy that same jar back filled Mm. with olive oil. And now we never hear another word about these boys. We don't hear any more about her story because she has been established as a businesswoman. And that that has empowered her to care for her children. And I would want to challenge people who want to do something to end human trafficking to look at this story and think about a prevention strategy in your neighborhood that empowers the mothers of the children at risk. It is really an amazing story, Sandy, like so much that's in the Bible, thousands of years old. And yet when we stop to think about it, which I had not I've heard the story before, but I had never thought about it in the context. You've just described it, and it's amazing how many parallels there are here between human trafficking in today's world and what was written thousands of years ago, and obviously different time and, and different objects in the story, but the the core issues are really the same, aren't they? Well, and if we try to do things where we create um, huge programs that are dependent on us to be there, so if we'd have set up, in, if, in this situation, if you can imagine some of the things we might do, um, and I'm using a collective anonymous we, but some of the things we do, we'd set up um, a, a weekly food distribution thing in her neighborhood so she could come and get bread and cheese and Um, some of the staples of rice and beans. Um, But she's going to have to come back every week. And if we lose the funding for doing that weekly grocery distribution, then what happens to her? Mm. Well, what happens to her boys? Then their risk goes back up again. Um, And so when we're looking at prevention strategies, we can do some short-term fill-the-gap things but we need to be looking for preventions that empower people to take care of themselves. I um, I know that many of you probably have heard Joanne Butrin at our Ensure Justice Conference. And this last year, she talked about best practices 
for human trafficking efforts in third world countries. And sometimes we want to bring our our Western um, technology and and some of our, our strategies without understanding that they won't be sustainable unless they continue to have the resources from the West. And one of the, I remember once um, attending a, a class on community development in Africa. And one of the things that they did for a widow's group, they taught them how to make their own sun oven. And they would make a sun oven that would bake um, the cow pies that they picked up in the field from the animals. They would bake them, cut them, and bag them as charcoal. And they sold this to other people. And it was a sustainable business that was uh, used a local resource that the local people needed to have and would purchase from her. This was um, an example of a very low-tech prevention strategy that empowered a mom to take care of her kids. Sandy, there's the old probably cliched phrase, at least in my field, that if you give a person a fish, they eat for a day. If you teach them to fish, they eat for a lifetime. And I think about that in relation to the story and what you just said, in that it is it is it is easier and it feels good. And we see the results immediately by doing the short term things. And I think both of both you and I in the center would would agree that there are times that absolutely that is a necessary and important step is to do those short-term things that can um, be a temporary solution. And in addition to that, the long-term perspective and the long-term sustainable things that people can learn to do for themselves and the way that the community can get involved to support that is really the message from this story, it seems, and also the message for all of us in the partnerships and the collaboration and the prevention that we've talked about so much on this show. Well, and the part that really impresses me is how natural this was. She went to church and the, you know, for our particular circumstances, she goes and talks to the pastor and, and he has a plan that is very wise and develops a strategy that will empower her. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out how do we begin to multiply this kind of strategy in our churches? Because so many churches want to go and do something big to um, fight human trafficking. There are some that um, are doing some efforts around uh, trying to find the brothels or searching for girls who are being sold online. And they're kind of treading into some gray area where they might be interfering with law enforcement investigations, and they might actually put someone at risk. We've had that conversation before. Um, and and then others are going out and um, doing street work, trying to talk to girls that are actually out on the street. And that's um, not something everybody can do. There are a few people that can do that. But what about prevention? What about prevention further up the, um, the chain, further upstream? And 
the question I'd kind of like to ask and talk about is where is the front line to end human trafficking? Our podcast is called Ending Human Trafficking. It's not called Combating Human Trafficking. And if if we're on a mission or, or fighting human trafficking or, fighting, or all yeah. those other terms that we could we could use. Yeah. So what what does ending human trafficking look like? Well, it looks like preventing it from ever happening. And you can find all of the bad guys and put them behind a fence and then there's going to be more coming and so just stopping the bad guys is not enough. Prevention that empowers um, a young mom to take care of her kids in this story mm-hmm. was the best way to avoid ever seeing those boys as slaves. Same, same story thousands of years ago, and we're still learning the lessons from it, Sandy, of the importance of the factor of prevention and really taking that long-term approach and not just handing over some some money or some food or whatever is needed in the moment, also looking at that long-term strategy behind it. And I, I love the tie into the name of our show too, because I, I think one of the best things that I would love to do someday is cancel the show because we don't need it anymore. Oh yeah. That would be, that would be thrilling. And both you and I would find plenty of other things to do <laughs> in the world. Um, so that, that really resonates with me as a long-term goal for all of us of how do we really end this? It's not enough just to stop today's perpetrator. Yes, we need to do that. Yes, and we've talked lots on the show on ways and, and strategies and resources that are consistently doing that. What is also the larger conversation around that? Well, and, and then this, this other aspect of prevention being connected to empowerment, um, that isn't something we've talked about a lot and I think partly we haven't made the connection um, to the degree that we need to. A lot of prevention strategies are built around, let's warn people about the risk. Well, if you warn someone not to take a job that might have um, the potential for becoming uh, a slave and they have nothing to fall back on, then when they do their executive decision-making process of risk management, it's like, so do I stay here and not take the job offer that might be good? And if I stay here, I'm unemployed and there is no food for my family. No, I'm going to take the risk because maybe it'll be better. So prevention that doesn't include empowerment places the possible victim in a really difficult decision-making quandary Mm. because they have to evaluate how much risk is there as opposed to what are my circumstances. Really powerful, Sandy, a really powerful way to look at it. So I want to challenge people to start to look in your community at prevention strategies that um, include an empowerment aspect. So yes, please keep giving out um, uh, handouts and little shoe cards that tell people the 888-3737-888 number to call the hotline here in the U.S. Please continue to teach kids to be wary of somebody that offers them a weekend job. Um, Teach kids to take precautions if they're going to go on a trip with a friend that they don't really know. 
But at the same time, um, if you see a kid that's coming to school with with uh, shoes where his toes are sticking out the end, um, you know that the situation at home isn't good. And so an empowering prevention strategy is to go back and find out why the kid doesn't have shoes. Because we all know that the predators, the recruiters, look for kids who don't have the same clothes, don't have access to the same resources, and they target those kids. So I need to think of this the same way I think about those two little boys that never became victims and figure out how I can empower their mom so the kid does show up on the first day of school with a new pair of shoes, Mm. like all the other kids. I love it, Sandy. And it really then gets back to how we started this conversation, which is ensure justice, not just hope for it or wish for it or provide some relief in the moment, but to work together in a collaborative effort as a community, as individuals, to ensure that the time and effort and resources that we put into this effort to end human trafficking really is sustainable because if it isn't, then you know we're better off doing nothing and spending the resources on other. There's so many needs in the world. We could spend resources on many things. Let's do something that is really sustainable in the long run. Absolutely. And I, at the risk of starting to sound just a little bit too contemplative here and thinking through things, um, the Global Center for Women and Justice, many times people um, ask me, um, it, does this mean that you have um, a law degree or something at Vanguard? And it's like, no, no, we're not talking about retributive justice. We're not talking about, oh, good, I'm going to see them go to jail. But when we're talking about the Global Center for Women and Justice, we're talking about the kind of justice in this story that empowers someone to have the same kind of opportunity that I have and that you have. I love it. That's one of the reasons that I've always been so much a, a student of your work, Sandy, and the center's work, because it really does look at that broader desire to see people have that that same opportunity and to have that same access to justice that we all deserve as human beings. And it is, it's such a privilege to be a part of that. Well, I hope that if you are thinking about attending Ensure Justice 2015, that you're going to go to our website, gcwj.vanguard.edu and make plans March 6th and 7th, 2015, right here at Vanguard University. Our theme is coordination, collaboration, capacity, and compassion. And speaking of connecting to us, we would love to hear from you as well on your thoughts on the story and the message that Sandy shared today. And the best way to do that is to send us an email at gcwj.vanguard.edu or you can call us by phone 714 966-6360. And Sandy, I have to say I'm thinking about Greek food right now now that you brought all that up. (laughs) Is there a way for people to get access to your cookbook? Because we weren't joking about that. You have written a fabulous Greek cookbook. I'll, I'll, um, I'll put some instructions on the show notes. So if you'd like to find out how to not only end human trafficking, but to have a great Greek meal, go to GC wj.vanguard.edu 
www.edu. And when you get to our homepage, just click on podcast. This is episode number 85. You'll find the notes up there. And of course, the notes for every episode are always posted on the site and there's lots of other resources there too. Sandy, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks, Dave. See you in two weeks.